Well, that was a wonderful time of worship and just the way that the songs weaved us through God's holiness and then thinking about why could we even come together and worship a God, right? It's because of the forgiveness that he offers. I really hope that that did prepare your heart well for uh, hearing the word of God preached. One of the, one of the interesting lenses, Lord, that, that we just heard about, that we just sang, that we would look through, that we would see others through the eyes, uh, through the eyes of his son, through the lens of his son. Um, it's a very interesting thing to think about and just look around the room and just consider. And you can look around the room and just think about how much sin Christ has covered just in this room. I mean, it's a sobering thought. We're not even thinking about the community. We're not even thinking about the world. I think when we really ponder our own sin, and then you just think about our own church, um, it's amazing what his blood has covered. So praise the Lord for Christ. Our annual theme this year that we're going through is building on our heritage. Okay, so we chose that because it is our church's 60th anniversary, and it's a perfect time in our history I mean, it's a perfect time whenever to celebrate God's amazing grace, but a perfect time in our history to think about the amazing kindness and faithfulness of God to our church. It's also a really good time to look back and to consider what it is that this church was founded upon. So that's why we've been walking through Ephesians slowly, really thinking about our identity as one in Christ. This church was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. This church belongs to Jesus Christ because he has purchased it with his blood. And so if we're going to wisely build upon that heritage in the future, then we need to make sure that we are wisely building on our identity in Jesus. Now, the only way we actually know the gospel, the only way we know who we are in Christ is by looking to his inspired, perfect, authoritative, and sufficient word. Jude tells us this in his book. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down for the saints. I mean, by God's grace, our church is not in a position of fighting and contending for the faith within these walls. Praise the Lord for that, that we are in a place where the membership, the deacons, the elders, the pastor, that they are in a place where we actually believe this once for all handed down to the saints' faith. Paul said it this way in Galatians 1, I'm amazed that you are quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, as we have said before. So I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is accursed. Now here's the point, right? There is one gospel. It's been handed down. It's been delivered once for all. And if we're going to continue to wisely build as a church, we better make sure that we do not stray from this once for all handed down gospel in Jesus Christ. And so our identity in Jesus is critical to making sure that we are doing that well. Now, the pre-conference for the Biblical Counseling Training Conference, if many of you, I think, were there, but if, if, and we asked you to pray for it, but it was on childhood trauma. Now, because of how dominant that theme has been, trauma and abuse and so forth in our culture, we thought it was really, really important that people spend time thinking about it from a biblical perspective. One of the reasons for seeking to understand it from a biblical perspective is because 
man, that becomes the way that people tend to start to view and live their life is through a lens of trauma. And it's quite evident that if we don't have a lens that comes from Scripture, it really distorts what we're talking about this morning as far as forgiveness. And it distorts forgiveness in three ways. So first, there is the context where through the lens of trauma and abuse, we have an idea of forgiveness that we could sum up as cheap grace. So cheap grace is essentially the non-conditional forgiveness model where those abused, they must forgive their perpetrators unconditionally. And the focus primarily on that emphasis, and you'll see this in the culture for sure, is that that kind of forgiveness is therapeutic to help the victims therapeutically heal. Okay, so that's cheap grace. A second way that trauma and abuse has distorted forgiveness is in the model of a little grace kind of forgiveness. Okay, so this model is basically a transactional kind of forgiveness. It's a forgiveness where the victim gives up their anger so long as the perpetrator does enough to earn forgiveness. Okay, then a third way that forgiveness is distorted through the lens of trauma is especially, especially is in a no-grace model. Okay, so this model advocates that there should not be forgiveness, period. This model is really being advocated more and more today, not just in theory, but it is being advocated strongly in the public square where people are being pressured to not forgive because that kind of forgiveness, they would argue, is actually allowing abuse and perpetrators to continue on doing the abuse. Now, I really wish we had time to unpack each of those more fully because those aren't just distortions of forgiveness that show up in trauma. Those are distortions of forgiveness that are present in everyday relationships. And so we need to understand that true forgiveness, uh, we, we start to really understand that forgiveness, our view of forgiveness, shows up in everyday relationships, especially when serious sin is committed against us, or against somebody that we love, as well as when we seriously sin against others. So in each of the three models, your cheap grace, little grace, no grace models, they all miss the biblical reality of costly grace, which if you ever uh, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, he talked about costly grace, costly discipleship. And that is what we're really after, where we see in Scripture that forgiveness is costly, now, our text that we're thinking about this morning is short, right? Most of what we've been thinking about through this series is short. Um, we're looking at Ephesians 1 verse 7, and we're honing in at just the last portion of Ephesians 1 7 and a little bit of the beginning of verse 8. Last week, Pastor Byers talked about redemption from this passage where it says, In him, that being in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, and the text says, which he lavished upon us. Right, so we're focusing this morning on we are forgiven. That's part of our identity in Christ, and knowing that identity is crucial to the gospel and for us wisely building on this in the future, and especially as the culture gets more and more distorted on what forgiveness actually is. So we're thinking about three characteristics of God's forgiveness. His forgiveness towards us is costly. 
It's not cheap, it's not little, and it's definitely not a no-grace kind of forgiveness. So the first characteristic is that forgiveness is universally needed. Now, if we really believe that it's universally needed, that should be immediately humbling and obviously undercut the no grace, no forgiveness, vengeance kind of approach that our culture is really advocating today. One of the most significant answers given in Scripture why forgiveness is universally needed is because everyone is a sinner because of Adam's sin all the way back in Genesis 3. Scripture is very plain that in Adam, all of humanity has sinned, and so we read like in Romans 5.12 that just as through one man sin entered the world, that one man being Adam and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now this verse teaches the doctrine and the concept of original sin. Original sin is the doctrine that Adam being the corporate head and representative of humanity in his sin, all of us have sinned, right? The point is that something in Adam's sin actually brought about the sinfulness of humanity as a whole. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's really not fair, right? Why does the sin of one man who was born thousands of years before me affect my standing and my identity, I mean, you'll be happy to know that you're standing in a long, long line of people that have chafed against the original, uh, the doctrine of original sin, right? And on, while the one hand, there may be lots of company in that line, not every line with lots of company is good to be in, right? The doctrine of sin, not even the doctrine of original sin, is really offensive to humanity, Right? The doctrine of original sin is even more offensive to humanity, but make no mistake, just because something is offensive certainly doesn't make it untrue. Right? For example, my wife can tell me, Greg, you stink, or you smell like a smoked sausage, which she says a lot around the wintertime because we have a wood boiler out at restoration. She doesn't mean the good kind of smoked sausage. Right? And I can object to that and take offense to that all I want, but that doesn't change the the fact that I stink. Now, Blaise Pascal, I, I, did, I have showered, so I don't stink this morning, I, d- I don't think. But anyways, Blaise Pascal wrote in 1670 on this point of original sin. What he said is very interesting. He said, original sin is foolishness to men, but it is admitted to be such. You must not then reproach me for the want of reason in this doctrine, since I admit it to be without reason, but this foolishness is wiser than all the wisdom of men. For without this, what can we say that man is? His whole state depends on this imperceptible point, and how should it be perceived by his reason, since it is a thing against reason, and since reason, far from finding it out by her own ways, is averse to it when it is presented to her. Now, the most important reason why we believe in original sin is first and foremost because it is plainly taught in Scripture. But secondly, original sin is so offensive to mankind that the idea that mankind would invent it is crazy. That's part of what Pascal's trying to get at in this quote. It's so crazy to us that, like, it must be true. Then a third reason to believe original sin is because it's really the only thing that explains why every single human being is bent on rebellion against God and foolishness and self-destruction. Right, hence Pascal's point, the foolishness of original sin here is wiser than all the wisdom of man. 
Right, you see, one of the cornerstone foundations that Faith Church has been built on is the belief in the inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God. Right? We don't believe doctrines in Scripture because they tickle our modern sensibilities. Right? We believe the Scriptures and the doctrines that it teaches because they are the very words of God and all of them are true. So we affirm what Corinthians says, that is, as in Adam, all die. But, praise be to God, that also in Christ we'll be made alive. So everybody needs forgiveness because of original sin. But original sin doesn't mean that we all are perfect, wonderful angels, and there's people out there that are doing so well, but we're just held guilty because of what Adam did, right? We also have just the basic doctrine of sin, which means that nobody is innocent. And kind of the point here is, even if you don't fully affirm the doctrine of original sin, that still doesn't solve the present problem of sin in our lives, Right, So I, I'm sure we don't have anybody here who would object to them being a sinner. Right, We could call up your spouse and co-workers and children and so forth, and we'll also give, let them give testimony. I don't think it would take very long to prove that all of us are presently sinners. And so that's why we believe what Romans 3 would say, that nobody is righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they become useless. There's no one who does good. There is no, not even one. So regardless of original sin or not, the current state of our sin puts us in a place of needing forgiveness, This following quote from John MacArthur is aimed at trying to help us understand what is at the root, the core of sin, because oftentimes we can have this idea of sin, it's it's only the big and bad things. But our culture doesn't have too many big and bad things left that we would even call sin. So this is trying to help us get at what is the root of it. So he says at its core, sin is a violation of the creator-creature relationship. Man exists only because God made him, that's true, and man is in every sense, therefore, obligated to serve his creator. Sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy for himself apart from the creator. So the most all-encompassing view of sin's mainspring, therefore, is a demand for autonomy. Autonomy, we could also just describe as America's staunch stance on individualism, And that is essentially a dogmatic stance that is opposed to God. I mean, you think about our culture is telling us all the time, do what makes you happy, right? As opposed to following anybody else's path or any laws or rules that might lead you towards happiness. Be true to yourself, right? As opposed to look to the truth of God and his law. Be your own person as opposed to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. I mean, the American culture and mantra today is vehemently opposed to God. I mean, practically any secular movie, song, TV show, any counseling approach is encouraging you away from God and to live for your own conception of happiness. It's very important to understand that because if we're not aware how opposed the culture is to God, not just in the obvious like big things, if we miss that in very subtle ways the entire cultural current is taking us away from the Lord, we're going to be caught up in that. 
So Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now that, that verse we're all super familiar with and communicating that we're all guilty before God. But a huge problem with at least how I've noticed people hear that verse today is people don't think that falling short of the glory of God is that big of a deal. Right? Why isn't it that big of a deal to fall short of the glory of God? It's because people have no concept or clue how valuable and worthy God's glory is. Now, we don't have time to go on a tour of Scripture wherever you see God's glory manifest itself, but when God's glory manifests itself to people, people usually fall flat on their face in fear and reverence. But because of our paltry appraisal of God's glory, many people would readily admit, yeah, I fall short of the glory of God. It's just not that big of a deal to them. I mean, as a culture, we have to admit that we have really lost a sense that there is truly anything sacred or holy anymore. I mean, this has been happening over decades, but where we're at today, because of a decade, decades of movement away from God's glory and transcendence to just a focus on the imminent here and now, our culture really doesn't count anything as sacred anymore. I mean, for example, I mean, you just think about the amount of full-time comedians that make their job making fun of everything, and there's no boundaries of what you make fun of. Right? So marriage falls into that, religion, sex, God. I mean, anything you can think of, there's nothing sacred anymore. And most of that humor is all aimed at making everything common. Then, of course, I mean, we could look back. I didn't really live through these, but we could look back at the blue laws or the, the Sunday closing laws. I mean, the ideas today that like stores would close on Sundays, right? that's crazy to us. Or like that you wouldn't go to sports games, that there wouldn't be alcohol. Like, that's crazy to us. Now, again, we're not, we're not in favor of legalism. We don't think we're saved by, by being legalistic, and maybe some of those had a legalistic bent. But it certainly seems that we have run so far from legalism that to put any restraint on anything seems taboo in this culture. And one of the things that we should be super thankful for as a church is our church's heritage that they called sin, sin, right? And that only happens when a church actually values and treasures God's glory. I mean, that's something that we should be extremely thankful for. God is holy, he is glorious, and to fall short of the glory of God is sinful, and we need to call it that. We should be thankful that we have a heritage of brothers and sisters that stood up to call things sinful that actually are, as opposed to what our culture is doing today, calling everything a health problem, or it's a personality thing, right? And so if every problem we have is a health issue, right, the idea of needing forgiveness is totally foreign, and then it's going to be offensive, and then the same thing as far as if everything's just, it's just a personality problem. I don't have a sin problem. Again, the idea of needing forgiveness can be totally foreign. And in that environment, the gospel is just not even going to be heard. So I hope you would really join in thanking, thanking the Lord for a church where they have called sin, sin. And I hope that's a heritage that we want to keep going and build upon. And because of sin, there also are consequences. 
And I, I really do hope, one of the things I've seen, um, especially in counseling and so forth, but it seems like we think consequences are bad things. I really hope we pause and thank God that he gives us consequences, right? If there were no consequences for sin, we all would blissfully and joyfully sin our way right into hell. It is a loving, heavenly, perfect father that puts obstacles and consequences in our way so that we would actually realize we're going the wrong direction and turn around and seek his forgiveness, One of those consequences is the broken relationship with the Lord. No question about it, this is the most severe and troubling consequence due to sin. Now, this is not often the most felt consequence due to sin. I've mentioned this, this quote before from John Piper, but I think it bears repeating. He said, everybody hates suffering, but very few people hate sin. Right? So many people don't know that a, they have a broken relationship with God. That's why the broken relationship with people is actually such good news. <laughs> right? Sin causes all kinds of brokenness in relationships, and those relational consequences within marriage, with your children, at work, and so forth, that often is the lens that finally opens people's eyes to start seeing they have a real problem with God. But then there's also just the broken, broken relationship with creation. And so in the curse in Genesis 3, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten the tree from which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. But thorns and thistles are to grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I mean, life is hard, and that's why life is hard, is because God has cursed this world. Right? It takes so much effort to keep things going and to maintain things, and then with all the effort it keeps to maintain things, our bodies usually hurt from trying to keep it going, and then the older we get, the more our bodies hurts. Right? But the physical consequences of sin in physical pain and brokenness and creation, again, that becomes one of the main doorways through which people actually see that they have a broken relationship with God and are in need of forgiveness. So praise the Lord that consequences often are what open people's eyes to see their need for forgiveness. Forgiveness is the only option to solve our brokenness because of the cost that sin bears. Romans 6.23, we're all very familiar with this, for the wages of sin is death. That is so, so much more than just physical death. Right? The death that is in view in that verse, if you read in context carefully, it's eternal death in hell. That's the wage for our sin. And a wage is what you get for your due. Right? It is your just payment for sin. And so our due is that we receive an eternity in hell for our sin, which the Bible describes as second death. That cost of sin cannot ever be paid back by us. I mean, sometimes thinking about sin in terms of financial terms is really, really helpful. And sadly, our country provides a very real-life, non-hypothetical example of this. The current debt, at least when I was looking at this on Tuesday, was $34.2 trillion. 
Okay, America spends close to $2 billion a day only on interest payments. That doesn't knock down the principal at all. Trying to pay back your sin is like you working as hard as you can to pay off all of that debt on your own. Right? You'd have to make over $2 billion a day to even make a dent on that. I mean, our only hope for forgiveness and everybody's hope, or our only hope for paying that off is forgiveness, not us paying it back. But forgiveness can't just be found anywhere. That forgiveness is found exclusively in one place. Right? The truth that forgiveness has only one source, there, there's a really, really good side to this, a side that we tend to like. There's also a side that is a bit harder for us. But both of those sides are really, really good news, I hope to show you. Think about what David wrote in Psalm 51. This is really interesting. It's one of the most well-known psalms in the Psalter, where he, after he, it's a prayer of repentance, after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, and then covers, and then kills um, her husband and covers it up, right? So David says in Psalm 51, 4, against you, being the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is right in your sight. I think we need to chew on that for a moment. Right? In, in what sense can David say, after committing adultery, after killing somebody's husband and sinning against a whole lot of other people um, in that scenario, in what sense can David rightly say against you and you only have I sinned? I mean, how, like, how can that be? <laughs> how could he clearly have sinned against these people and then say, it's, it's against God only I've sinned? Isn't that kind of a cop-out to say that? <laughs> I think the answer is, Certainly not. It's not a cop-out to say that. And I would actually argue in a very real sense, David gets the reality of what his sin truly is. I mean, what David realizes here is that because of who God is, right, what he's understanding is that only forgiveness can come from the Father. Now, let me illustrate what I mean by this and why this is so important. If you die and you're standing before God on judgment day, and somebody stands up at the judgment and says, hey, you sinned against me, and I don't forgive you. Is God going to be standing there going, you know, I, well, I, yeah, I forgave you, and I really wanted you to get into heaven, but like, he didn't, so I guess it's to hell. Is, is that what's going to happen? <laughs> Do you need the forgiveness of anybody else other than God? No. Now, you can flip that scenario around. You go, what, let's say everybody on the planet has nothing wrong with you. You got 8 billion people that stand up at the judgment and say, that's a swell guy. Anything he ever did, we've, been, we've forgiven him. He should go to heaven. If God hasn't forgiven you, does it matter? No. Right? That, that's why we read in Micah that who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity, who passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. There's no one who pardons like God because nobody can forgive like God. Right? The reason that God must be the one to pardon and forgive sin is because he is the creator. 
Okay, he owns everything and everyone. Any sin against another person is directly against the Lord because he owns everyone. So first and foremost, all sin is against God. I am owned by God. So when someone sins against me, they sin first against the Lord. And that's why Psalm 130 says, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. God alone is to be feared because he is the one with whom everybody must deal. Now, a really important question that we must answer is how forgiveness can be granted. How could, right, theoretically speaking, our $34 trillion debt of sin against God, which continues to climb, ever be forgiven? Now, I know it's hard for a lot of people to grasp, like, why can't the U.S. just wipe that debt out, right? Why can't we just say, like, you know, it's a bad game of Monopoly, didn't go well, let's just start over, right? Debt has to be paid. Somebody has to absorb it. It cannot just be canceled. But in order for it to be paid and absorbed, somebody actually has to have the resources to cover that debt. And it's only through Jesus Christ that the Father can be satisfied. It's only in Christ that that debt can truly be covered. I mean, our text this morning says that we have redemption through his blood, right? And what that is, that which is the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood is the only satisfactory payment to cancel our debt of sin. Peter tells us that you were not redeemed with perishable things, Perishable things like silver or gold from your futile ways of life you inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, an unblemished and spotless lamb, the blood of Christ. I mean, we've been talking about sins in terms of financial debt, but Christ's blood isn't perishable like money. It can't be valued with money. It can't be put in terms of dollars. It is precious beyond what our imaginations can even comprehend. And yet, even though Christ's blood was that precious, right, we're told that God made him to be sin who knew no sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a fulfillment of a promise long ago in Isaiah 1.18 where it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. How in the world does that happen? Well, there is no salvation in, in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved Um, other than Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus says in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. The only way to come to the Father to receive forgiveness is by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's only by believing in his name and his substitutionary payment on the cross that was made for you that you can be forgiven. Now, I do think it's really worth pausing and actually being amazed that God would desire to forgive. Right? I mean, sometimes I think we can run so quickly to go, yeah, God is big, he's powerful, of course he forgives. That's, like, that's a really important point. He's able to forgive. But if you think about it this way, right? like I'm, I'm assuming Bill Gates, Elon Musk, or Warren Buffett, I'm sure they could handle any of your personal debt in here. 
right? No problem. They got the resources for it, but are they going to? No. And why are they not going to? They don't want to. They don't care to. And so my point is, just because God can forgive, that doesn't actually mean that he's going to, right? But because of his great love for us, he wants to forgive. I mean, think about what he told his disciples just hours before going to the cross. He says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, I mean, it's stunning that Jesus would call sinful humans his friends. It is his great love that causes him to befriend sinners. Romans tells us that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, not us. (laughs) Though perhaps for a good man, still not us, someone would dare even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 in that same chapter says that while we were his enemies, Christ died to reconcile us to himself. I mean, believers, I hope we don't let our hearts grow cold to the love of Christ for us. I mean, the church of Ephesus, right, the the book that we're studying in Ephesians, they're written about in Revelation saying, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. They had strayed away from the love of Christ. Our church has a heritage of loving the Lord, and it is important to remember our identity as one who has been forgiven and to stand daily amazed that God would choose to love us by sending his son in order to provide forgiveness for us. I mean, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I... Man, I'm thankful that you're here, but I would implore you and beg you to ask God to help you see his amazing love for you in sending his son for you. Christ shed his blood on the cross. The tomb is empty. He's raised again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, proving that the payment was accepted. There is no sin too great that could cause God not to love you and not forgive you. There is no amount of suffering or rejection from people that could cause God to say, I don't want you. Jesus says in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will surely never cast out. Now, I pray that you would see God's amazing, amazing love in Christ coming for you. He came to this world because he loved us, and I hope that we would actually respond and go to him for forgiveness. Now, this forgiveness is freely offered. Not the little grace, not the no grace, certainly not the um, cheap grace, of course. This is lavish grace. Think about our text, right? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace. And verse 8 says that he lavished upon us. I mean, that's really good news. It says the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace as opposed to according to the effort and diligence of your penance or according to, you know, the degree of your passion and zeal. The forgiveness of our sins is according to the riches of his grace, not the scraps of his grace, not the leftovers, like the riches of his grace. 
I wish we had time. If you just do a, a study on the word riches, you, you find some amazing, amazing truths about God in the New Testament. His grace is abundant. It's lavished. It's 100% undeserved. Romans tells us that the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, sin came in through Adam and it reigned. But grace came in to reign through Jesus Christ. So the wages of sin is death, but the free, the undeserved, the lavished gift of God um, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's really, really good news. That good news, it really does require a response. One of the things I've been particularly struck by in this present season of my life, just in where I'm at and reading and studying what the Lord's been showing me, it's amazing that God reveals who he is what he wants us to do, what he wants our responses to be, why would he reveal anything to us? But he does, right? So if you see that you are a sinner, that you are in need of his forgiveness and that Christ is the only answer, right, then what shall we do? Well, he's told us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I mean, John confirms what Paul wrote in in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, maybe you've, you've thought this, or maybe even yesterday, you would think, I failed, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed, and I failed. I sinned like 70 times yesterday in the exact same way over and over and over again. Maybe you're thinking that at a certain point, God would say, well, you've, you've come and confessed too many times. There really is no longer any forgiveness. <laughs> Friends, you won't find a single verse in the Bible that would say that. You won't find a single verse where God would say, just stay away from me for a time because I'm kind of sick of it. He wants you to come and confess over and over and over again. And he says he is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins. Now, you remember how I said that there is, there's a really, really good side to God's forgiveness that we really like? It's exclusively from him, but there's also a challenging side to us. And that final, this final point is the challenging side. The receipt of grace, it requires that same response towards others. Because God has freely forgiven us, if someone seeks forgiveness from me, I must forgive them. It's not optional. Matthew 18.35 says, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. The forgiveness we are required to show is costly grace. It is costly forgiveness. And we're required to do that because that is what God has shown to us. Now here's one simple story to illustrate that point. Hashim was a 15-year-old living with his mother and hanging out on the streets of Brooklyn with a gang when he was shot six times and was left paralyzed from the waist down. For most of the next year, he lay in the New York City hospital fantasizing about revenge. 
He later wrote, revenge consumed me. All I could think about was just wait till I get better. Just wait till I see this kid. But when he was lying on the sidewalk immediately after his shooting, he had instinctively called out to God for help. To his surprise, he had felt a strange tranquility. Now during his rehabilitation, a new thought struck him, namely that if he took revenge on this kid, why should God not pay him back for all his sins? You see, six months before this happened, he wrote, I shot a kid for no reason other than a friend told me to do it and I wanted to prove how tough I was. Six months later, I'm shot by somebody because his friend told him to do it. That thought was electrifying. He could not feel superior to the perpetrator. They were both fellow sinners who deserved punishment and needed forgiveness. In the end, I decided to forgive. I felt God had saved my life for a reason that I had better fulfill that purpose, and I knew I could never go back out there and harm someone. I was done with that mindset and the life that goes with it. I came to see that I had to let go and stop hating. I mean, you see, when we understand forgiveness, that the forgiveness that God has towards us, we can't feel superior to anybody else anymore. We can no longer hold sin over somebody's head as if they're beneath us. Now, often people, I think, bristle at this idea. It's like, how can God demand that we forgive others? Isn't that just workspace righteousness? Right, but when we really begin to understand what forgiveness is, what grace really is, we come to learn that forgiveness and grace transforms our heart to want to forgive and love the way that we have been loved. This isn't works-based righteousness. Right? This is grace-based righteousness. This is the power of Christ's transformational grace and forgiveness in our lives that we would actually respond that way, not out of just obligation, but desire. I really pray that our church builds on a heritage like that, that we would be a church that would be known for showing this kind of costly grace and forgiveness to the community because we want more and more people to actually come to know the grace and forgiveness of Christ. Let's pray to that end. God, we do thank you, Lord, that you have shown us grace, costly grace. Lord, you sent your only son, or down to this earth to be amongst your creatures, Lord, who daily sin against you, who daily sinned against Christ. And yet, Lord, you did not retaliate, but Lord, you overcame their evil with good, ultimately by going to the cross and shedding your blood for us. God, I do pray that you would help us not to take forgiveness lightly. God, I fear that sometimes, because forgiveness is so often talked about, and it should be in the church, um, that we start to think light of it. God, your forgiveness is astounding. And Lord, if we just ponder and think about our own sin, Lord, the fact that um, you would choose to forgive us is amazing. God, I pray that that grace and that forgiveness shown towards us would transform our lives individually, that as a church we would be a place that shows that kind of forgiveness to one another and that is willing to offer that kind of forgiveness, Lord, to a world that is in desperate need of your forgiveness. God, I pray that people would come to know Christ, Lord, seeing the way that you have transformed your people. Lord, we thank you for the heritage that we have 
um, built upon the forgiveness of Christ. May we continue to grow on that in the years to come. Lord, protect us. Help us to be a church that carries the gospel forward, Lord, for many, many more years or until you would return. God, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.